Thanks, Tony. Um, if you did not get a handout, Gene is passing things out. And also, um, there's a, there are several sheets going around. Sign up with name and email addresses. Um, so if I think of funny videos or things to show send in the middle of the week, you, you don't want to miss those for sure. So, uh, so th this is going to be fun, but fast, um, because you know, each one of the, the six topics that we're trying to cover over the next six weeks, there have been multiple books written about any one of them. And so at, at, the, very, uh, at the very most, we can just kind of hit some highlights um, and get some particular points in, um, hopefully lead to some discussion and questions along the way. And I uh, would love to have uh, those opportunities for interaction. And so we'll, we'll, we'll take that as, as we go along. I also want to illustrate things with singing, of course. And so we'll try to make sure that we leave time at the end of each class period for a little bit of singing. So I want to start today with the uh, early church, uh, from synagogue to the early church, and the role of music in, uh, in early worship. But there's a couple things that we need to deal with first, just in terms of the foundation uh, for talking about music in the early church. Uh, the first one is the idea of the fact that, the, the, um, especially within the context of the Old Testament, um, we're dealing with an, an oral society. And so the idea that, that hearing is believing, as opposed to seeing is believing, which is more of a Greek idea, uh, hearing is believing was much more prevalent. So you think about things like um, um, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, the, the great statement of faith of the Israelites uh, is based upon the, the fact of, of hearing these truths and believing these truths. Um, Christ says in, um, in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So the idea of, of the ear has a different role and a different level of importance. Uh, the idea of listening has a different level of importance uh, than we would necessarily give it. And so that's one aspect that to, uh, to highlight uh, the importance of that. And the next, and this is, this is a much bigger and wonderful topic, uh, what did the early church think about music? Uh, in, in terms of the context of how did they even conceive of the idea of music. And there's so much about what we think and assume about music and what music is and what music's purpose is, uh, which would have been foreign to um, thousands of years of, of history. And, and so the early church was, was situated in a time and a place which had particular ideas about the structure of the universe, how things worked, and the role of music in that. So I want to give a, um, a bit of an overview of this. Um, this may raise some questions, which would be great. I'd love to talk about that. Um, but this is an important understanding and foundation. So if you read statements that the early church wrote about music, you need to, you need to remember that what they're saying and how they're using that word and the context of that is different than how we would say that. And so there's some times in which you see um, people appeal to writings of the early church to, to um, um, justify their own positions or their own ideas about things, when in fact what they're writing about and the context in which they're writing is, is a far different understanding. So uh, during this period, there was a belief that, that we inhabited a musical universe. Uh, that the universe was created, that the universe was knowable, uh, and that there were opportunities for discovery. 
And so you know, God made a world in which uh, he has revealed himself and we can know more about him through the things that he has made. The maths and the sciences, uh, especially in the early Greek uh, ideas of education, were geared towards the idea of understanding the universe, understanding what has been made. The universe is filled with patterns. There are things that interconnect. Uh, there's an intentionality there. Uh, for example, one of the early uh, Roman architects said that to get the proportions of a, of a building beautiful, you needed to use the same proportions that were beautiful in music. And those things were consistent. There was an intentionality there and a connectedness, the patterns that, that flow from one idea to the next. So ideas of art and of music and of architecture and of engineering, they're all working within the context of the created order in the created world. So even the foundations of where music comes from in terms of the planning of it uh, and the history of it is rooted in the created order. Uh, another aspect of the understanding of the universe is that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, so this involves continuous intervention and if Christ withheld his word, a word of his power, the universe would fall apart. It would fly apart. And so there was an ongoing process by which the order of the universe was sustained. And music was seen as a part of that. Music was part of contributing to the harmoniousness, the sustaining of the order of the universe. It was, it was connected to that. Either you were in discord or you were in concord. You were either causing harmony or disharmony, whether personally or relationship-wise or culturally. In Romans 1, we see that God has revealed himself through what he has made. And so part of the, uh, part of the, the desire for discovery was to understand more about who God is, his character, his nature, um, and how that is reflected in the things that he has made. Which means that on a personal level, life has meaning. Life has context. Uh, we have a place where we belong. In this order of creation, God has created a space for us, a place for us, given us a role that we are to inhabit. That's the aspect of dominion um, that we see in, uh, in the beginning of Genesis, to have dominion over the earth. There's a particular role that we have within the process of sustaining and extending uh, the order of creation. And the cosmos is reflected in the soul of a person, in relationships. As I said before, it's interconnected and it's interwoven. Um, and then we get to the idea of, of harmony, um, the, the, the concept of harmony, not necessarily only from the musical sense, from the greater uh, context of harmonia or the biblical idea of shalom, of peace, the rightness of all things. And so you see, for example, in uh, the Garden of Eden, you see the picture of how things were meant to be, the relationship of man to woman, woman to man, man and woman to God within the context of the garden. And then you see the discord that sin brings. And we, we see that restored then, um, as, um, as Paul writes, um, that the peace that comes through the blood of the cross 
You know, it takes the redemption of Christ through the blood of the cross that brings peace, shalom, the restoration of all things, back to um, the view of what was intended to be. And so that, that aspect of peace, of shalom, of, of harmony pervades not only uh, doctrinally and theologically, but also cosmologically, um, that, that um, the redemption of Christ was a cosmological event restoring and bringing peace to creation that had fallen and restoring what was intended to be harmonious. So, as I said, this was the view that was consistent for thousands of years with the idea of the harmoniousness of the universe. Uh, The alternative view, which is only about 400 years old, um, is the idea that that the universe is um, capricious. Uh, It's one of chance or randomness that's marked by change uh, there's a much more individual uh, aspect of, uh, of your relationship to the world around you. Uh, there's a lack of a foundation there. With regards to learning or education, uh, this is when we get to the point of the idea of specializing in a particular concept or minutia of something. The spe- specialization, which then, um, the detriment of that is that you miss all the beautiful connections. I mean, if you're just focused on one idea, then you miss how it's interrelated to the rest of what God has made. So music in the first view, uh, with the the musical universe, uh, music reflects the created order. Music reflects the character of God, as we said, as God has revealed himself. It reflects God's beauty. The aspect of aesthetics. Beauty is an attribute of God, as scripture says. Um, And therefore the idea of beauty is a theological concept not a subjective one, not an entirely a subjective one. Our, our, our ability to apprehend those things which are beautiful uh, adds the subjective element. But there's an ideal there. That's a whole other discussion in itself. Sorry. Um, we can talk about that later. Um, music has meaning. And so music moves us in moral ways. I'm not talking about just lyrics, but the idea of music itself moves us in moral ways and helps to define our right-ordered loves, to use Augustine's language there. Music moves us in moral ways. If, if you know any of, of Plato's writings, uh, you know that he talks about the fact that there's certain music that he um, sees as appropriate within, with, with regard to the Republic, with regard to the ideal state, the ideal culture, that certain types of music are going to um, encourage Good citizenship, other types of music are going to make weak men, and you want the right kind of music to make the right kind of society. Um, This is consistent also with the ideas of Confucius. Um, This is a pervasive idea um, in the ancient world that music has the ability to affect someone's morals. There's a moral character to music. That is not a category that we're used to thinking about. We tend to think in terms of the morality of music based upon the, uh, the, the lyric content, but not necessarily on the musical content. Um, it, it, it's interesting, um, and I need to read up more on this, so I hesitate to throw this out here, but I will, because I've introduced the idea now. Um, Vladimir Putin is, and you didn't know I was going there, or did you? You had no idea I was going there. <laughs> It's a fascinating guy. I mean, he considers himself to be kind of the last bastion of, of Christian um, nations. Um, 
that's a whole other discussion. But one of the things that he has recently done is working towards banning aspects of rap music in Russia. Because he sees the music itself and the themes of rap music as being degenerative and working against culture. Now, that's a whole other discussion and a whole other argument. But it's interesting that even now, I mean, within that context, that somebody, um, even leader of a nation, is taking that kind of a stand. But that, that is consistent with how people would have thought about music and talked about music um, in, in much prior generations. So because of that, because it has this moral impulse to it, um, part of the role of music is to train our affections. And it's a necessity, is a part of the overflow of living. So the, the idea of training affections um, in, the, in the early Greek ideas of education, which was picked up by the early church as well, um, in, the early, um, in the early stages of education, um, it was divided between gymnastics and music. The idea is that you're training and disciplining the body and by musical education, literally education in the muses, which the nine muses in Greek thought would be um, you know, poetry and dance and astronomy and music, um, th those nine would, um, who are the daughters of memory, um, would inculcate a cultural understanding and train uh, the, the students' affections. And so you have the training of the body and the, and the discipline of the body and the training and the discipline of the mind in the enculturating in the affections and the training of affections. Uh, at that point, then you entered into liberal arts and then philosophy and theology. Um, but that was kind of the foundation of that. Um, and as I said, the Greek thought was pervasive in the early part of the church. But the idea that, that music has this particular role uh, that trains the heart uh, and so in some ways, music is the primary way um, in which we train affections, one way or the other. Um, as, a, as a modern or postmodern society, we're used to the idea of transfer of information, you know, listening to an expert or a talk or a TED talk or whatever, and taking notes and, you know, and this, this imparting of, of knowledge. But the idea of training the heart of affecting the heart, of, of uh, moving towards what's beautiful, what's good, what's true, what's virtuous. Um, because we, you know, you, you, we all know, and Nate says this beautifully, um, we all know far more things than we actually do. You know, we, we know a lot of good things in our heads, um, but actually doing those things takes the will uh, and, and the right ordered loves, the affections to actually put those things into place. In which, and, and also the, the, the idea of affections was much broader. It's not just you know, affections equal emotions, um, but affections itself has a broader context. I put a couple quotes in here in your little handout. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, for example, in his Religious Affections writes, uh, the affections are no other than the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and will of the soul. That's a definition that, that far outstrips the idea of how do I feel about things or the emotions. Uh, it involves will and, and um, uh, sensible exercises. It, it requires training. You know, it's not just something that we inhabit naturally, but it requires training. Uh, Scott Annual in his book, Worship and Song, 
It says, affections, on the other hand, involve the mind. They arise as a result of some sort of cognitive understanding of truth. They are not immediate, but developed. They are not merely surface-level physical responses. They support the intellect. Affections are so important to develop because we need noble affections to keep our passions in check. Without biblical affections, passions will always win over the mind. And so this idea of, of training of the affections is a much broader concept um, because it involves the will and involves the mind. Um, again and again, we, we see in the Psalms the way that um, the, the, um, the psalmists pick up this idea of the inherent quality of music and how it, is, uh, how it is around us. Psalm 19, just being one example, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The creation itself speaks constantly, but without words. Uh, it's, it's God's revealing of himself. One of the early church fathers, um, Athanasius, wrote this uh, regarding the idea of music and, um, and the cosmos. Just as, one, just as when one hears from afar a lyre, which is a stringed instrument, made up of many different strings, and wonders at their harmonious symphony, that not only the low one produces a sound, not only the high one, and not only the middle one, but all sound together in balanced tension. And one concludes from all this that the lyre neither operates by itself, nor is played by many, but rather that there is one musician who by his art blends the sound of each string into a harmonious symphony, even though one fails to see him. So too, since there is an entirely harmonious order in the world as a whole, without things being at odds with those below and those below with those above, but one completed order of all, it follows that we know there is one leader and king of all creation, not many, who illuminates and moves everything with his own light. Um, Stephen Guthrie, who's a professor at Belmont and one of his books, he writes, um, one of the purposes of the cosmos is the creation of music, the ultimate purpose of all things, including music is the glory of God. And it is this common telos or, or purpose which unifies creation and invests every act and object with purpose and meaning. All things are good and significant because they all may contribute to the highest good. Additionally, there is unity to the cosmos because all things have been created for one purpose and end. So we see this unified idea with music in the cosmos with the idea that that trains affections because it reflects the character of God and the things that he has made and orders our loves rightly to be more like Christ. That's the purpose of music. Um, that's, a, that's a heavy purpose of music. That's a significant purpose of music. Um, that's, a, that's a foundational aspect of why the early church sang. It's a foundational aspect of why the people of Israel sang. Um, you know, in the various contexts, we see again and again the Old Testament, how they used song in the New Testament as well. But th there's a greater weight to it. It's not a superfluous um, concept, an add-on to life. It's not just something that's fun. It's not just something that, um, that we do that pleases us. 
Uh, it can do all those things, but there's a greater, greater work at, at, at that's going on there. Um, and that's part of what they think, what they were thinking and how they were working towards that. So affections need to be trained. Uh, it's not just enough to, uh, to love the right things. You have to learn to love the right things. You know this is true in all sorts of areas of life. You have to develop disciplines for things, whether it's exercise, whether it's broccoli, um, whatever it is. You know, um, Some things you tend towards naturally. Other things you have to discipline yourself to do. Um, the, the concept of the idea, and this is true of the early church and in, in, uh, in subsequent generations, to ask the question, not what we like, but what is good for us? You know, what is good for us in the context of worship that's going to make us more like Christ, that's going to make us and unify us as his bride? That's a far different question than we usually ask. Uh, as I said before, affections are related to the heart and mind, to emotion and reason, learning to love the right things. Um, and the moral component, that music is the primary means of training affections. So all this is the foundation then. Uh, we'll come back to this in subsequent weeks because this is that's a lot in terms of, 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 of um, kind of reorienting our thinking about something that we may not even think a lot about. Um, we're surrounded by music at the gas station, at the grocery store, um, in our iPods, in our cars. Um, so it's something that, that, that's ubiquitous, but not necessarily thought about. Um, and because of that, too, even the purpose has changed, uh, how we view what its significance is. So in regards to um, the aspects of moving from Old Testament, the synagogue, uh, into the early church, um, one, one thing we need, to, we need to talk about as well is that um, musical notation... Um, the way in which we can understand it didn't happen for about another thousand years. And so to know exactly what music sounded like, we, can't, we have guesses, but we don't have specifics. Um, so that's, that's a bit of a handicap there in trying to figure some of those things out. Um, and musical notation with regards to rhythm didn't happen until um, around the same time. We'll talk about that as, as those developments occurred. Um, and so some of these things are... are um, or difficult to know exactly, obviously, what things sounded like, um, but how it was related. And some of the uh, some of the writings in the New Testament have more an assumptive quality of the role of music as opposed to a prescriptive quality of what's being said or done and what the practice is. We see more of the aspects of practice in the writings of the early church. Um, what we do know is that there was an emphasis on the word, um, that this is a conveying the word of God we can also see, too, the development of two different practices um, from the Old Testament period into the time of Christ with temple worship and then also with the development of the synagogue worship. Uh, music was at the center of the sacrificial system in the temple. I mean, you can read again and again with regards to the list of instruments in the Psalms or with David and his division of Levitical um, musicians and the various um, um, number of choir members and trumpets and so forth. Um, so it was, a, it was a professional group that he uh, instituted for temple worship. So it was a much, very much a lyric event. And as I say, part of the sonic landscape. Uh, loud, boisterous. Um, it was um, 
I have this, yeah. There's a lot of pageantry. I mean, you've got the aspect of sacrifice there um, you know, to accompany that. So there's a lot of, a lot of pageantry uh, involved with that. The synagogue was word-centered worship that moved from speech to song, what we would think of more like chanting, and we'll do some of that here in a minute. Uh, chanting of scripture, individual singers, congregational responses. Um, it's a good thing to remember, and, and temple worship continued until AD 70. Uh, synagogue started before that during the dispersion and then um, continued on in various places. But what you see again and again in the ministry of Christ, I mean, he's going to the temple. I mean, he was presented at the temple. He's, you know, goes when he's 12, he's there and stays, uh, continues within the temple. We see the uh, apostles in, in Acts going to the temple, participating in purification rites, keeping the feast. Uh, participating in the worship of the temple, while at the same time involved in going to synagogues. We see Christ in synagogues in the Gospels as well. Um, it, the synagogue was um, um, more geared towards the study of the law. In Psalms, it was a more sober event uh, than the worship in, in the temple. As I said, the early church continued to go to the temple until its destruction in 70 AD, but also continued in the work of the synagogues. So in, like in, in, in Acts chapter 2, when it says that the early believers you know, observed the prayers, which is a plural word, uh, you, know, you have the idea of the many instances of, um, of prayer times throughout the day. You see that again in the Psalms. So the, this ritualizing of worship throughout the day, of consistent with the temple, we see them going to the temple, uh, we see them interacting with the rites there and the worship and giving testimony to this. Um, so both of those things provide influences in the early church. Um, of course, one of the things you have to remember as well is that the early church is pretty much an underground church uh, in the first few centuries and in, in, in homes. And so the idea of ritualistic, loud, many instruments um, is not something that is doable within the context of meeting in homes. <clears throat> Quentin Faulkner in his uh, book, Wiser Than Despair, uh, says the Old Testament presents a sympathetic view of making music in the service of religion, whereas the New Testament is largely neutral to music. The Old Testament shows no suspicion of music's power, while the early Christian church, living in a hostile cultural environment, quickly came to be suspicious of it. And while religious music making, as reflected in the New Testament, is largely simple, modest, and undeveloped, religious music making in the Old Testament is unabashedly, yea, enthusiastically lavish, elaborate, splendid, and highly developed. And part of what he's responding to there is that music had become in the early, um, if you know anything about in terms of like history of Rome, some of the, the, the decadence that caused the downfall of, of the, the Holy Roman Empire. Um, music and theater and licentiousness, um, types of instruments, types of music were all kind of rolled in together. Um, and so there was, um, comments, uh, prohibitions, et cetera, laid out in the early church against that type of music making, against those types of instruments, against those types of, of use. Um, and so once again, it's important to understand some of the distinctions <clears throat> between <coughs> those different categories. Um, what we do see, though, too, is even in the context of the New Testament, again and again, different types of song forms that are, um, that are utilized within the early church. So for example, I've got several of these listed here, the short praise formula, uh, basically doxologies 
There are 20 of these in the New Testament. Uh, for example, Romans 11:36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Or Ephesians 3:21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4:20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 4:11, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there's 20 different statements like this that occur within the context of the New Testament. They're just short doxological, short um, ideas of, of, of praise. And then there are, are fragments and acclamations, uh, things like um, amen. That's short. Um, hallelujah, Hosanna, uh, Maranatha. <clears throat> they began to be used almost kind of as an uh, uh, antiphonal or a, a uh, response. Um, so, you know, the idea of, like, for example, right before, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And everyone would say, amen. You know, so you have that, that, that aspect of response in, uh, in those short fragments. Um, then uh, there are the nativity canticles. Uh, canticles is a word for a biblical song. So we just spent uh, the month of December talking about the nativity canticles. Uh, so you've got Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, and Mary's song, the Magnificat, and you've got Simeon's song, the Nuc Dimittis. So these songs which are written out in Scripture, Book of Luke, um, that are centered around the birth of Christ specifically. Um, then you have the category of God hymns, uh, which are different in that they are centered more on God the Father. For, so, for example... Um, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, that begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that continues on. Or 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Or 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Revelation 15 Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. So these are, these are um, hymns centered on God the Father in particular. Uh, then we have Christological hymns, uh, which by their name would suggest that they center on more the aspects of Christ. So for example, Philippians 2, um, may this mind be in, in you as was in Christ Jesus. Or uh, John 1, in the Gospel of John 1 through 14, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was in God. That, that, that section there from, first John, uh, from John 1. Um, psalms are fairly self-explanatory uh, in this context. Not only quoted Psalms, which is the most quoted book in the New Testament, um, but also psalm uh, compositions, things that were newly, newly written. Uh, as I said before, with the, with the house church in the second and third centuries, we know from evidence from various writings, the use of psalms, the use of, of cantors enchanting. A cantor would be basically the lead song singer. 
um, sing a line and the people respond, or, or sing a line and the people sing that same line back, or um, in a different response. So the type of learning uh, of, of, um, of music that way, or, and also the, the, um, the work of the people, the back and forth. <clears throat> in terms of the writing of hymns, uh, we have um, several really early hymns. Um, got one there, the, the Greek form of poetry. You had that shift too. Nate talks about this in his sermon this morning, talking about you know, in terms of psalm form. Um, the poetical form of a psalm is one of, of repetition. Um, I it, it, um, can't remember if it's C.S. Lewis that said this, or, or Bono, I can't remember. It's one or the other. They're easily confused, I know. But one of them talking about the psalms said that uh, you know, it's a rhyming of ideas, uh, which is a beautiful way to put that. Um, the Hebrew form of poetry is it's a, it's a rhyming of ideas. But with the influence of Greek poetry, you have standardized stanzas and meters. And so, um, o, o light gladsome of the holy glory of the immortal Father, the heavenly, the holy, the blessed, O Jesus Christ, having come upon the setting of the sun, having seen the light of the evening, we praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God. Worthy it is at all times to praise thee in joyful voices, O Son of God, giver of life, for which the world glorifies thee. Or Clement of Alexandria, who died in, in 215, um, shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love and truth through devious ways, Christ, our triumphant King, we come your name to sing, and here our children bring to join your praise. It's obviously a translation that was also put in verse, um, but it, it's true to the original in terms of stanzas and the use of meter. And so from these, early, from these early days of the church, we have um, the writing of hymns, the addition of, of theological content um, that, um, that is part of the life and worship of the early church. Um, and next week, too, we'll see how the writing of hymns specifically dealt with theological issues um, that, that were coming up with in regards to the ecumenical councils. Um, but you see all these types of, of uh, use of, of um, song forms within the context of the early church. Um, once again, for the service of the word uh, and for the building up of affections. Um, and you see, we will see continue that theme next week as we see how that developed into a more formalized structure. Uh, so with, with the... Um, with Christianity being made lawful um, in the church no longer underground, there was the opportunity to systematize things, such as the music of the church. And we'll talk about how some of those various threads were drawn together um, in, uh, in particular ways, and how that then led to other further developments. But that's the, that's, the, that's the foundation, and we'll continue to come back to this idea of the musical universe, because it's an important one uh, in, in understanding the context but I also wanted to sing and then leave time for questions. So let's sing first and then we'll do questions. Um, you, you have on the back of this handout, this is an Anglican chant. Um, so it's not, like as I said before, we don't have written versions from the, uh, from the early church. Um, but it is good to illustrate the idea of what's called the antiphon, which is that first line, which is sung at the beginning and the end. Um, and then uh, the way that the, the, uh, the verses are divided. So let's learn the first part. We are his people. This is um, antiphons were often 
uh, elements from a psalm or like an alleluia or hosanna that bracketed a psalm. So that first part, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Let's sing that together. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You see, the, the, the rhythm comes from you know, natural speech rhythms. Let's do that again. That's good. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Good. And then you see the verses of the psalm, and they're divided with an asterisk in between. So the first part before the asterisk is my call, and then after that would be your response. And you see also that that corresponds to two measures of music, more or less. That looks kind of like music. Uh, there's that long, dark line in there that's known as the reciting tone. And so if you have a bunch of words, that's the note you sing the most uh, because you're reciting more syllables on that tone than anything else. You also see the little um, accent marks over the syllables, and those correspond to the marks in the music. And that's where you, that gives you the hint of where you're supposed to move. So, for example, um, the first call is, the Lord is my shepherd. And the response, I shall not be in want. It's tricky that way because you only had one syllable on the reciting tone. Uh, next one, he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. Can you get the idea of that? That sounds pretty really good. Let's, let's go all the way through. Uh, I'll do the antiphon, and then we'll do that again at the end. So all together. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He revives my soul and guards me along right pathways for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You spread a table before me in the presence of those who trouble me. You have anointed my head with oil, and my cup is running over. Surely your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Part of the effectiveness of using chant is that, oddly enough, it's memorable. It actually helps you remember the words um, and, and just the way that, that, that flows with the notes. And it's also um, 
good for projection. And so instead of just speaking something and hoping people would hear without amplification, singing it allows for that opportunity for inflection, uh, for um, the contour of the ideas, but also it makes it a little bit louder. I hear the bell, <laughs> but are there any questions quickly? Yes. That's a good question. Um, exclusive use of solemnity. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, this is, that's a good question. There's a, there's a lot of interesting turmoil at this time, too. I mean, we'll, you know, one of the things that we'll get to at the beginning of next week, I'll throw this out as a teaser, um, is that because of the misuse of music around the church around this time, too, um, um, singing became men only. And so eliminated the, the, the sing, women were supposed to sing quietly to themselves in worship. And so there was a lot of interesting things that because of what was going on in culture around them that created practices that we wouldn't necessarily. So when people say, let's get back to the worship of the early church, maybe not, you know, <laughs> not exactly. I mean, there, there's, there are some principles there that we need to hang on to, uh, but not necessarily all that practice. And that's, and that's, one, that's a good part of the, of the um, um, an overview too, is that there are, there are beautiful theological practices and ideas that have been developed over the history of the church. Um, theological ideas. Some of the practices of those have looked a little weird in terms of the context of when they were, when they were created. Um, but what are, the, what are the principles that we can learn from? Uh, what does it mean to take music seriously uh, within the context of worship? And then you know, kind of build on that too for the time and place where God has put us. I do think we're out of time. Sorry. Uh, thank you. The, the, hopefully this will open up a good conversation over the next few weeks, and uh, we'll continue next week with um, the early, uh, the, the next generations of the church and the codification of, uh, of music for worship. Thank you.